Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 17 of Trail Society, brought to you by Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger, and we have a special guest for the entire episode today, taking the spot of Hilly Goat, uh, my good friend, Danielle Snyder, who's actually parked in my driveway. <laughs> hi. <Welcome. laughs> Glad to be here. Keely, you want to intro Danielle? Danielle, do you want to intro yourself? Can you tell the audience a little bit about you? I feel like that is something I get asked a lot and I wish I had a succinct way to explain who I am. Um, And I don't, but I'm going to today. Maybe, probably not. But most importantly, I am a dog mom of two dogs, one new little guy. And that feels really important to share. But um, I've been an athlete from a really young age. And one of the things I think that drew me most towards being an athlete was this fascination with endurance sports and how people tackle different endurance sports and how my mind handles different challenges. And I believe I got my master's in social work in 2011. And then I went the more traditional path of, um, getting my licensure and then working in therapeutic settings like hospitals. And as I, you know, started to explore my own endurance background, I decided that I wanted to steer and create my, a different kind of, um, practice that works specifically with athletes and focusing on awareness of mental wellness, self-talk, and how to use failure as a way to grow rather than a way to feel negative about yourself. Um, so my business is called Inner Drive Athlete, and I've been doing it for around three years. And I work with all different types and abilities of endurance athletics and work on their mindsets, work on their relationship with their self, their relationship with their community and how they view world and sports. I think we all need a little bit of that. And I think we're, we're, that's the whole point of our podcast today is we're going to kind of dive into what Danielle does for work and what we've seen personally in the ultra and trail community. And I think it's going to be a really great episode for, for all of us. I think we're going to learn a lot during the show, which is really exciting. Um, but before we dive into the results and the news section of our show, and don't worry, I don't have any rants today. So we're good. We'll be, we'll be an efficient episode because there's no long current rant. Um, but Danielle, you started this project or you, at least you're, you're a co I think at least a co-founder of a project that I think is really cool. And it's the women who FKT project. And I think it really fits kind of the, the vibe of our show as well. And I'm wondering if you can share with our audience, what is the Women Who FKT project and how can they get involved if they if they want to? Oh, no, you didn't have a rant, but I definitely do. I'm like, let me talk to you about Women Who FKT. So uh, I one of the athletes I actually coach, um, so on, on my business, I do coaching and then I do mindset work. And um, one of the women that I coach, she was running Hard Rock last year. And she originally, her name is Marta Fisher. She originally started the race and she was talking about place. And then she got called up for an interview. And I found, I believe that she found out that there was only 12 other women running hard rock. And she called me up and she was like, Danielle, 
I've changed from wanting to like do my best. I mean, she wants to do the best at her race, but her goal was to like get every single woman across the finish line. She's like, it is just as important that I finish as that woman next to me. And so she was so, I get like goosebumps talking about it because she was so inspired through hard rock and like elevating and that the more women who could finish, the better it was for women in sport. So after the race, she and I were talking and she decided that she wanted to start this project called Women Who FKT. Um, And I am someone who's also done a few FKTs and there's been this huge discrepancy between males and females. During COVID, it's gotten a little bit better, but um, you should follow the Instagram page women who FKT and you, there are some really crazy stats about the discrepancy and that it's not really being a, okay. It's being acknowledged, but it's not really being understood as this bigger picture in society. Um, and that it's this reflection. And a lot of people are like, Oh, you guys are like, we get a lot of positive support, but there's also some non-positive support about like, you guys are making a bigger deal about something. Women can do FKTs if they want to, not recognizing the challenges and the inherent bias within the sport for females versus males and like in the outdoor community, which people don't necessarily see. Look, I'm going on a rant, but they don't necessarily recognize that, like, you know, coming up running very close behind a woman could be intimidating to them versus like males may never, unless they're like trained or taught about that. So there's just different challenges. So we decided to create a group um, that basically talks about FKTs, encourages women. We do different, we're going to have a panel discussion April 10th with five individuals who are all um, a part of the FKT community. So it becomes less of this scary thing that people don't understand and more encouraged and um, trying to even out the playing field. Yeah. And we can definitely relate to that. I think we've crunched the numbers on enough races to know that um, hard rock is not alone in how few women tow that start line, but it should not be, that should not be the norm. And yeah, I'm reading some of the stats now that it shows there's almost 60% of the FKT routes have no female FKTs, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah we'll, you, we'll link that to the, in the show notes, we'll link that, uh, that site for you there. Yeah. You created an opportunity list that I thought was really cool. Um, that's specific to Washington and Oregon, kind of the Pacific Northwest, um, FKT community kind of, I think that they're all established routes that don't have a female FKT on them. If I'm correct, right. It's a yeah. really cool list. Yeah, um, Marta, the founder, and then there's, is it, I'm like, one, two, three. There's five of us total who are like in charge of the things. And her um, partner is really good with computers. And so he yes. like analyzed and found the routes in the Pacific Northwest. And it's really cool because there's this woman on the East Coast who is now starting her own Yay. section to encourage women on the East Coast. And so it's kind of like spreading. Um, and it's been so cool. Yeah. It's really, it's exciting. Cause the more, you know, to me, it like, I'm a really, um, my aim in life is to really reflect athletics 
in the bigger picture. And so if women feel accomplished on doing something that they're uncomfortable doing on a trail, then they, that also starts to translate into the bigger picture of life. And like, wow, I ran this FKT. Can I ask for a raise? Or can I like travel alone or do these things that maybe they didn't know that they were capable of? Yeah, I think that's really cool. I'm uh, my partner, Steven, my husband. I keep calling my partner, my husband now, Steven. Um, it's an old, old habit that will probably never die. Um, matched for residency. So we are actually moving to Seattle this spring. Yeah. So I'm so excited to be moving back to the Pacific Northwest and back to this community. Um, so I've been, I've been starring things on the, uh, the opportunity list to add to the, the, the scheming of what's possible. Um, maybe this summer, maybe this fall, which is really, really exciting to be back. Like feeling like we're at home in the Cascades again. Well, congratulations to him. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. So I'm excited to be moving North. We've got a lot of, um, Washington and Oregon listeners, and it's going to be fun to be back in that playground. And speaking of Washington, speaking of an old, old town that I've lived in Bellingham, Washington, the Chuckanut 50 K was this weekend. Did you all follow along? It was such a good race. I stopped my, like when I was running my long run, I was like stopping and updating. And I was like, what's going on? What's happening in Chuckanut? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, such such a deep field. I I've yeah. raced it. Danielle, have you run Chuckanut? I have not. You should. We'll we'll put it on your list. You should run Chuckanut. Um, if not, come up and we'll do a training run on it. It's super super cool. And then Keely, you've won Chuckanut, right? At least once. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. <clears throat> so fast. So let's talk a little bit about the men's race and the women's race. I think we should go five deep because that's how the the field was so fast and mm-hmm. so deep. Just to throw this out there based on what I've seen from historical results, this was the fastest ever, like top 10, top 12 women, like 12th was still under four 36 for women. So that's Mm -hmm. insane. Um, we'll start with the men's race, Adam Peterman, who I like pegged as my rookie of the year for 2021 won in a new course record of three twenty four. He won by 10 minutes. Like he's so fast and he beat the course record by 10 minutes as well. Yeah, which is which is cool because there were some slight course changes this year that definitely mm-hmm. made the course a tiny, maybe a tiny bit faster. Mm-hmm. But we're talking like a minute or two, not ten minutes. So like, mm-hmm. very very huge kudos because that was Max King's course record, if I'm correct, which is a pretty a pretty stout record to to break if that's the case. Yeah, I wish I knew exactly whose it was. I think it was Max's. But, <clears throat> but yeah, ten minutes is still stout, even if it was a slightly faster course. I know that some of the women did comment on at least Ladia who's ran it before did comment on feeling like it was quicker than, than previous years. But, yeah. The, but yeah, big, by 10 minutes, probably not since, yeah. since yeah, the girls times were fast, but they were not, you know, 10 minutes faster than, than Ellie's. So, yeah. And, and the big change was early in the race, you go through this little gorge and there's a bridge, there's a bridge that's been out for like a year now. Um, and so they basically avoided that section by going through a parking lot instead. So definitely like cuts a tiny bit of climbing, um, maybe a little bit of congestion early in the race. It's kind of where the course narrows for the first time, like a little over a mile in. So I think that was the biggest, the biggest thing, but I mean, to be 10 minutes ahead of Anthony Costales and Drew Holman Mm. is pretty good. So second was Anthony Costales, super fast Utah guy followed by Drew Holman, um, of Boulder and then Steven Kirsch kind of, I feel like dusting off his racing, racing shoes Mm -hmm. into a, a short 50 K, um, and Tyler green. So I think big, big, uh, we're big fans of Tyler green. So really, really cool. Top five. And then you mentioned Ladia Albertson Junkins won the women's race. 
And Mm -hmm. how fast is 410 on this course? 410 is fast. So yeah, I mean, the only two people faster, not to two my own horn, are myself and Ellie. And Ellie Greenwood has the course record at like low fours, 403 or something. So running a 410 and Kimber running 413 right after her is flying. It's really fast, especially because I don't care if anybody says the course feels faster. We'll say maybe it is, but their conditions were not great either. And so that always plays a role in the chucking up 50 K is because you get Pacific Northwest weather and you get a ton of mud and that Ridge line, there's a part of the course that you get to after the first really big climb that is just super technical. And when you have extra moisture and a lot of extra mud, like that part is not super speedy. So it's greasy. running 410 and 413 for first and second is fast. Yeah. These ladies was, crushed it. It was Ladia's first race back, I think, since having Post, a baby, yeah. which is Post-partum. so cool. Like welcome. I like, I tweeted like, welcome back to racing. Cause like, it's so like, it's in- inspirational. Like, yeah. And Lottie has been so awesome to follow coming out of her pregnancy because I think she's just been embracing her body for what it is so well. And she hasn't been fighting it. And it seems like her return to running has been based off of pure joy and pure elation about her body being able to do things, but not outside of its realm. And and it was really shown here that she looked so happy the entire time. She ran a stellar time and yeah, she had, she came back from a baby and she still crushed it. So if you're patient with your body, this is possible. Yeah. Super, super cool. Um, a new name to me. And I did a little bit of digging, trying to find a little bit more about her third. Mm-hmm. Also really fast. Like we're talking under 420 um, was Jasmine Lothar. I'm probably saying that wrong. She's from Nelson, British Columbia, Canadian gal, but she was eighth at run rabbit run. Um, our Canadians will probably let us know. Jenny Quilty, let us know. Jenny Quilty, um, fan of the show. She sends us good DMs all the time about race results. She had a stellar race as well. Um, I don't think in the top, definitely not in the top five, but I think it was like top 10 or top 15, like super, super good run. Um, Emily Schmitz, who is probably a new name for a lot of people, but she's kind of been, she's young and she's been hanging out, I think in Europe a bunch recently. So she'll be a newer name for people, but she is very, very fast. She was fourth. And then Ellie Pell, who was second at Bandera to secure a golden ticket for Western States, who just signed with on running, which is super exciting, um, was fifth. So really, really fast women's top five as well. And again, the top 12 women were under 436. And I want to say the first time I ever ran this race, Keely, when I was trying to figure out how not to get totally killed by you and Sarah Bard, I think I was whatever I was like fifth, maybe. And I ran like a four twenty nine. So that, mm-hmm. that is saying something for how deep and fast this field was this year. So kudos. Yeah, to I don't Mole. think I've ever seen top 12 go that fast. Yeah. So kudos no. to the race director, Chrissy Mole. It's the 28th edition of the wow. race. She's been the race director, the co-race director for a very, very long time. And I think she deserves a ton of kudos for getting people to the start line, to making it a super competitive race while still having, you know, tons of spaces in the race to make sure that the community gets to run it. Um, she doesn't, you know, give out a ton of favors, I would say to the pro field, but she's like did an exceptional job as far as like, she put together a super, super fast race. And I think that that deserves like a big kudos from a race directing standpoint, because that doesn't happen all the time. Mm -hmm. She asked the men to step aside Mm -hmm. for some of the posts. I don't, I wasn't there clearly, but I feel like she, she asked the men to step aside and let the strong ladies. So, I mean, that kind of comes back to our women who have KT. Totally. Yeah. Because she is a trail sisters sponsored event. And so 
I think they, they took that by the horns this year and they made a very big statement in the beginning by, by reserving some spots in the front there for those lead ladies, which was pretty awesome. It was super cool to see. I have like chills right now thinking about it. Um, we've got just a few other results. One that I just put in, I don't know, Keely, if you saw this, um, it came across my Twitter feed from faster women. Um, master a new master's mile 70 to 74 year world record um for the indoor mile was set yesterday um over the weekend uh by Catherine Martin and she ran she's 70 years old and she ran a 631.25 at the armory track like that's crazy if i can run a sub 10 minute mile when i'm 70 i will be stoked let alone I'm running at 70 <laughs> i can walk without a cane i'm like wow so i thought that was that really really so cool. cool give oh, us your secrets yeah she shouted out how it was really cool to watch the women's race too because they were like really cheering each other on mm-hmm. um in the event which is i don't know i think that's just exceptionally cool and i i think we all can gain a lot of inspiration from watching uh these badass older athletes like throw down at such, at such an extreme level. It's super, super cool. Yeah. And I think we'll just continue to see more and more records being broken as people continue these athletic endeavors later in life. It's so cool to watch. Keely, you want to tell us about the Barkley marathon? Um, sure. I mean, so Barkley marathon was a couple weekends ago, so we're a little bit late here, but alas, we are still talking about it. Um, and the Barkley marathon is this infamous crazy race that I probably get asked about four times a year from people who know I trail run and ask me why I haven't done it or if I'm doing it or (laughs) all sorts of questions. And my answer is always, I will never do that race. (laughs) Um, but this race is infamous for being one of the hardest races in the United States. Um, over the past, like years of the race, only 12 people have ever finished it all being men. Um, and the race is crazy because it has five loops and you have 12 hour time limit per loop that does add up if you finish loop faster than 12 hours, but each loop is around 20 miles, probably plus or minus a lot, um, with over 12,000 feet of climbing. And so you're looking at at least 100 miles for the entire thing and over 60,000 feet of climbing. And from everyone I've talked to about this race, it's probably a lot over 100 miles. <laughs> it sounds terrible. It looks terrible. Like the mm-hmm. people come out of this just completely scratched up and like totally deranged so yeah. much so that, um, Carl, um, who they like, I think was like, we're like, Oh my goodness, he could probably do it this year. was legit picked up like interrogating a trash can by local police officers. Yeah. Because it's not only that, that much climbing in that many miles. They also don't have a route and they have to follow a map to find books, like pages out of books along the way. And that's how they show the race director that they've completed the loop. And so like just add even more difficulty to an already difficult race. They make them do that. And then after they get used to the loops, the third loop, they have to flip around the opposite direction. And so again, when you're running for at that point, you know, going into 40 hours, uh, you're probably a little disoriented and With all of a sudden no you're going opposite. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely Although, crazy. And so, very, very brutal. yeah, no woman has finished the race in com- total completion. And, um, this year we had something cool happen. Yeah. So it was the first, um, the first year in a while, maybe a decade, it seems, um, where a woman completed what's called the fun run, which is three, three laps successfully. Um, and Jasmine Paris, who's an alternator from the UK, who is no stranger, to um, our listeners, hopefully, and as strangers to the show, we've shouted her out before because she's won races outright, um, really notoriously tough races, like the spine race in the UK. Um, so she's she has won tough 
lady. Um, so to finish, to finish a fun run is a big deal. It's generally a good sign that if you're going to come back to the race, that you could be a, cont- a contender to finish all five laps. Um, only two other women have ever completed fun runs, um, which is kind of insane to think about given that like some pretty good runners, some pretty good navigators, some pretty good, like ultra endurance athletes have shown up to this event. Um, so it was really cool to see Jasmine Paris at the race this year and to see her like successfully complete a fun run, um, in, in good standing. So very, I, I hope that she comes back next year, that she wants to come back next year and that she could be, you know, one of those, one of, she could be the first woman ever to finish the race, which would be amazing. And kind of a, the race director is convinced that women will never be able to finish the race. And I think he's like, I don't know. He's kind of a stickler, kind of a toughie in that. And I, I would love to have a woman prove him wrong. Totally. And she's quoted in runner's world as saying that she is 100% certain that a woman can finish the race. And I think alludes to coming back. So fingers crossed. Big fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> I think that's it for our results section this week. We definitely missed stuff. Um, continue to slide into our DMS and send us some race results. Um, I know that we're missing stuff week to week, um, but keep us posted because we, we can't watch everything. We're watching things that are generally part of our own personal communities, um, big golden ticket races, that kind of thing. But let us know what's happening. Um, send us your results, send us your friends results. Um, our DMS are always open and we know Jen, Jen Quilty will definitely help us out there. So, um, <laughs> once again, a big shout out to Jen Quilty's chucking up 50 K finish. Um, send us, send us all your DM news. Um, okay. So we're moving on to the news. I think the biggest thing that came out this week, um, was that broken arrow has announced a new drug t- testing policy as well as 50,000, dollars for a prize purse that's going going to be distributed between the 56k the 26k and the vk including equal prize purses for both men and women this is probably the biggest it's definitely one of the biggest ultra prize purses in the world in history it's also it's definitely the biggest sub ultra prize Mm -hmm. purse for the trail community um which is really really cool because we've been talking about this that ultra runners, we get in this thing. We think that longer is better. We think we, you know, we kind of fetishize having to run hundred mile races. Whereas like the sub ultra community is really, really cool. And I think deserves way more praise than they get. And I think that what Brendan is doing with broken arrow and bringing this kind of prize money to the table is so important for the growth of our sport. That's my whole thing. I think. Yeah. And he's paying out the top five. I don't know if you said that, but I thought that was really awesome too. Yeah. It's super cool because for most athletes who are, let's say professionally sponsored, who are on a bonus structure, for example, I know uh, I I'll say my personal contract, I only get paid out if I'm in the top three mm-hmm. bonus structure wise for my sponsor. So even at Western States or UTMB where a top 10 is really important, we only get paid out money by like by my personal sponsors if we're top three. And I don't think that that, that, that I do not think that that is unusual in contracts. So for a race director to throw out $500 for fifth place in the 26K and 56K and $100 for fifth place in the VK is pretty cool because I think it's supporting, you know, a really competitive field. I think it's supporting more people coming into the sport. I think it's supporting athletes who are sponsored and who aren't sponsored. So that that was very, very cool to pay out through fifth in both the men's field and the women's field. So even evenly distributed. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of in that same article, or if you just kind of scrolled down past that into their um, press release, you saw a couple other headliners, um, one talking about their drug testing, where they're actually going in accordance with USADA protocol for the Olympic and Paralympic movements, which is awesome. And they're part of Clean Sport Co. And so this means they'll actually be following guidelines. 
for sample collection. <laughs> which, which sounds <laughs> which sounds very like very straightforward right <laughs> it should be the minimum but, requirement but if you've listened to any of my previous rants on the courts program you will know that this is not necessarily normal in trail running for a race to follow usada protocols or wada protocols in drug testing so that's two samples that are going to be collected an a sample and a b sample there's a chain of custody there's the appropriate eyes on you on the drug tester on the on the sample being going to where it needs to go like this is it's really really important for your own protection as an athlete and for the integrity of the sport that we can follow protocols and guidelines that make sense for drug testing Mm-hmm. That's my rant. No, yeah, that's that's very true. And um, I guess going further down their list, they've done a couple other cool things too. So they also added in a pregnancy deferral program, which is not obviously the first time this has happened. A lot of other races have done that, but it is something that it is very good to see they added. And they've also added in a policy to facilitate um, transgender athletes' participation and um, contention for prize purses. And so they're just requiring some medical paperwork to be proving that they're undergoing certain amount of hormone therapy for at least a year, um, before the competition. And they will be treated the same re drug testing as other athletes and all of that. If they do, um, place top five in these events. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. And that that's like, that's similar to like NCAA policy. And that's very similar to, to Western States policy, which is one of the first races in the, in the U S or at least in trail and ultra running, who is put forward a transgender athlete participation policy. Yeah. I mean, I have talked a little bit about this specifically with Keely and, you know, it's, it's a really interesting and an impactful topic with that being said, it's also something that I, I think that human nature wants black or white answers. And so they either want to know, like, this is the way it's going to be, or this is the way it's not going to be. And I, it's too complex of an issue to just say, this is the right way. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation. We brought up Sarah Bard before I ran with her on Saturday and we were talking about the, um, genetic predispositions and how, if you do high, if you look at, um, some professional athletes have naturally higher testosterone and naturally have better genetics towards athletics and that there could be an unfair, um, it's not inherently fair. I think yeah, like, it there, like high yeah. level sport is not inherently fair. Michael Phelps is a freak of nature. Uh, Emma Coburn probably has the perfect proportions to run really fast. Like yeah. have high VO two maxes or good B12 metabolism. Like yeah. sport is there, there are pre there are genetic predispositions that go beyond being a trans athlete. And I think that that is oftentimes overlooked when people have this argument. Sure. And I, you know, I, this could be very unpopular opinion, but the way I, I think about it, if it helps one athlete not end up considering harming themselves or considering killing themselves. Like I will gladly not care about who I'm racing against. If that, if it saves a life or even more importantly, increases someone's like happiness in life to be the gender that they were inherently born with. And we as a sport can definitely do a better job supporting that. Um, but it's, you know, like people want this black or white. And I'm like, then we should genetically test everyone. 
Yeah. There's like, no, there's no end to it. Right. Or even yeah. I was having this conversation with my roommate, um, about other athletes and the idea of like, we we've got friends who, who have every, everything at their f- fingertips that they need to be successful. They're financially independent. They've got all the support systems put into place. Like, is that fair? Like they have everything that they could ever want to be successful. Is that fair? Like to sell, like, not to say that no, like all these athletes still work very hard, but it's like when we're, when we're in pursuit of fairness yeah. at, at, at high level sport, that's a really hard thing to, I don't know, delineate or like pull up, pull apart because it's like, it's inherently, we do the best that we can, but it's inherently not a perfectly fair system. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the times too, sorry, my lights just went off. That was weird. Hmm. Danielle's in the dark now in the van. <laughs> I'm like, huh? Oh, there we go. Okay. Nice. That, happened. that was weird. <laughs> not only it's a podcast. Look at, uninherently, but I, something I often come back to is like, I work so hard as an athlete. I stretch. Well, I try to stretch, but I weight lift. I run a lot. I eat well. I like try to manage my stress levels. And you know what? Like there are always going to be people who are faster than me. And there is literally nothing I can do about it. And it's not me putting myself down. Like I'm, I love the type of running that I do and I can be really strong, but I think inherently like this is, I can, I have to work with inside my genetics and my DNA and at the race, there's going to be different DNA. And this is exactly why we wanted to bring you on Danielle with Hilly being gone, doing badass things with Brooks this week. We saw this as a huge opportunity, um, to bring you on to the show to talk more about mental health and athletics broadly. Um, but also in our little sphere of trail and ultra running, we had a bunch of good dialogue and banter before we like started officially recording. And I'm really excited to dive into it today. And I think that um, we brought up this up, up a lot around the summer Olympics, um, this past year, because we had a lot of athletes kind of step forward and start talking about, um, start talking publicly and discussing their own personal struggles with mental health and the pressure they feel trying to compete. Um, this includes Simone Biles. This includes Naomi Osaka. This includes Michael Phelps in the documentary that came out, um, kind of about the pressure to perform and depression and depression post-Olympics and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm wondering as we start to publicly talk about about health and the and the, the fact that like physical well-being and mental well-being are not the same thing. Like how can we how is this good for the field? How is this bad for the field? Like how is talking about it publicly moving us forward? I'm like I'm pondering over how it can be bad. Well, I do think unfortunately there is still a stigma surrounding mental health and that we do negatively respond to people who are more open to discussing it. And there are still policies out there that discriminate against mental health. So for instance, if you are a private business owner and you're trying to get disability insurance, just in case something happens and if you have any type of mental health condition, they will not um, give you any disability insurance for mental health. And so there's definitely this uncomfortable, uncomfortable and vulnerability surrounding discussing it because our society does still judge it. However, the more we can start to normalize it and increase education on it, that it is not only an environmental, it is also a genetic component of our brains, the more we can hopefully start to decrease the stigma 
and help people understand that it's a part of being a human. Like having these struggles, having ups and downs, struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression is not something that doesn't happen to elite athletes or runners in general. Um, And, you know, like one of the things that I often hear from athletes and um, overall is that, you know, you look so healthy. You should be so happy. Like you were able to do all these things. And it's very difficult to say, actually, no. Like I know my Instagram looks like this. And I know I have accomplished all these goals athletically. And I'm really struggling. We don't open that up for athletes. We question it and we try to explain to them why they shouldn't feel sad or why they shouldn't feel anxious about these things. So I think the more that, you know, unfortunately we do rely on professional athletes and elite athletes to kind of lead the way on those types of things because, oh, it's acceptable if they feel that way because we really hierarchy. And the more that people can be honest, like, yeah, this is, this is a human struggle. Life is hard. The more people will realize that this is, this is a part of like growing and adapting and being, being alive. Yeah. And that's in line a lot with some of the articles I've been reading lately around Katie Meyer, who was a Stanford soccer player who died recently of suicide. Um, And a lot of people started talking about things like perfectionism. Um, around performance and around school and all sorts of things. And one of the quotes from one of the articles that I'll link to here in the show notes goes, there's even more emphasis on trying to get into a top university and excelling athletically. There's now pressure for kids as young as 12 to start to focus exclusively on one sport and commit up to eight eight hours a week to training. With all the pressures and money in it, all of those things change the relationship that kids will have with sports. And they talk about this in relation to some people who look like you're saying, Danielle, on the outside, really athletic and really healthy and really happy. And they have all these performances under their name that makes them seem like they should be really happy and successful are are committing suicide. And so how do you think we stop this? And how do you think we can inform practitioners to, to look at new kinds of like signs that might like give them the insights into this new population that might not fit the bill? This is another one of those topics that I'm so excited about that I have to be, I'm like, okay, how can I put all my thoughts into order? Because it's, it's so prevalent and also something that as a society, we really don't do a good job with. So we are so proud when a kid does well. Like we have inherently um, created a system in which like, when you don't lose, that's so exciting. When you um, like choose a sport and you do really well in it at a young age, it's honored. And I don't feel like that teaches kids how to fail or how to grow. Instead, we have these kids who are struggling with these tendencies that we as a society actually celebrate. So like if a kid gets straight A's, we're like, awesome, you're so great. How can we continue and get this 4.0 and go to this special college? And in there, there's not a lot of room for that kiddo to learn to say like, maybe I don't want to do this. Or how can I learn from falling? Or, you know, what is mental health and mental wellness? In my ideal world, 
we would be teaching these skills along with sports at a very young age of emotional um, literacy. So we can talk about failure and growth and experience and what we gain outside of just playing the sports. I'm not saying that sports aren't important, but sports are like at 12, our brains are not fully developed. I mean, at 25, our brains are not fully developed. Why are we expecting these kids to where their bodies and their brains aren't developed to specialize? And I, you know, I'm sure there are going to be people out there right now who are like, wow, that's pretty bold. But at the same time, I just can't like get behind not supporting a kid as a whole human being. Like we are more than athletes. We are more than this individual event. We are more than school, like who they are as a person and like the effort that they put into these things should be celebrated, not the outcome. Yeah. That's the whole, like, I think trying to teach kids and teach any of us, right. That our, our self-worth is not tied up in our athletics or are in our results. And I think that, you know, having spent time coaching junior or youth level, like level athletes, like a lot of nine to 13 year olds, like you have to teach them that you have to tell them that straight up, like that your mom and dad are still going to love you, that I'm going to still care about you, that your siblings are going to still love you, um, independent of how the race goes. And I think that it's crucial for these little kids to hear that. And it's crucial for us as adults to hear that because that's a really hard lesson to learn. And yet there's still like, there's a ton of research that has come out about that actually early specialization in sport does not produce better athletic results. You know, that it actually supports more of like a well-rounded athletic background coming into professional athletics as an, as an adult, as fine, finally as an adult, right. To put this pressure on a kid is like, I think just terribly tragic. Well, and even just thinking about, cause as a coach myself, regardless of ability, people are so hard on themselves. Like there's never this, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have accountability for challenging races or maybe not doing as well because accountability is, is good. Like I'm not going to blow rainbows up everyone. Like, I think it's important to say like, Oh, I could have run that race better. But at the same time, like beating yourself up for not performing your best on one race, it in the big scheme of the big picture, it doesn't mean you're not a good athlete or it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy these things just because you struggle. Yeah. I think that's a really important take home lesson. And I'm wondering kind of moving from, um, you know, the, the Katie Meyer story and moving into kind of our, you know, the broader athletic story, moving into the trail and ultra specifically, you know, working as a practitioner in this field, what are some of the biggest issues you've seen that that are personally affecting us in the ultra and trail space? Like, is it the same as like any, any general athletics or college athletics? Oh, we were reading some really amazing articles about the prevalence of mental health um, disorders within the ultra running community. And this, these articles were the first few that I've actually seen that have hypothesized what I have believed, which is the ultra community brings together a really unique type of population where you have to be committed and a bit um, like, how do I describe myself? A bit interesting to go run 
for hours on end in the middle of the woods. Like, you know, we, you know, there's a little bit of interesting vibe to that. And so this um, article by Jill Colangelo, it's yeah, it's Italian. She has a great quote um, about the discussion of mental disorder in the ultra endurance community. And one of the things she said that was just so moving to me is that mental disorder is acknowledged in the community and perhaps disturbingly accepted or even expected as a part of the training. So this concept of death before DNF um, or like no pain, no gain is just a David Goggins. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Goggins. It's a very interesting philosophy because some of the toughest athletes I know, know how to make that call where they can adjust. And I'm trying to create a new movement about ultra running being more about like resiliency and flexibility and adaptability because we have, we have that. And if our goal is longevity, which all of us are talking about running when we're 70, we have to be able to find that balance between pushing extremely hard and overcoming mental barriers, but also working with our bodies. And so the ultra community, because we're kind of do these crazy adventures where we're running 500 miles or 200 miles or whatever, we, we struggle to find that balance. I have this post-it note from my talk, a talk I did with uh, Neil Palace, who's a, another social worker um, yeah, and works right. kind of in the performance space. I love Neil. He's amazing. But it says, it's, it's, it's mirrored now for everyone. Psychological flexibility is greater than mental toughness. And then like, it's a, now a sticky note that lives on my desktop monitor because I think it's so true. Yeah. I think it's true in my own athletics. I think it's true in my athletes' athletics and what we're seeing in the field that when you're looking at skill sets, psychological flexibility should be valued more than mental, than quote unquote mental toughness, kind of the dot, the, the David Goggins-esque approach to, you know, being tough and hard and all that kind of stuff. We can't run yeah, but, if we're injured or if we're dead. Yeah. Right. But I guess, what does that look like in a, in a race context? Like spell it out for people. Well, I mean, for me, it's kind of like, sometimes we have to make decisions that don't feel good in the moment to help us long-term. So that might be, for instance, like at an aid station, sitting down for five minutes and eating a burrito, even though in your head, the mental toughness says that you should not stop, you should keep going and you should finish that race. Like uh, those are kind of, it's not a, to a lot of us, it's, it's like really hard to do that, but that's adaptability. Or the conditions are really bad and you really want to like go out at course record pace or you really want to go out the fastest race ever or your fastest pace ever, but you have to adapt. Like one allows for adjustment and the other one allows for like pushing through and finding that balance. Okay, that makes sense. I'm also laughing because whoever didn't eat the burrito it's probably me. <laughs> Christ, I'm going to move to the full seat. Sorry. I don't know. Well, Danielle, has lost. Again. Danielle has <laughs> lost all of her light once again. Yeah. Well, I, I think ultra running in general is just a very interesting avenue for mental health, like discussion, because 
when you look back through a lot of research around mental health, um, there's a lot of research that says exercise is good, Mm -hmm. right? It improves mental health. Um, and we're in a sport that requires us to exercise a lot, right? We, we go out and we run a lot of miles every week. We go out and race these races that encompass a ton of miles at once. Um, but there's also a lot of studies that start to show where increasing training volume or too much increase in exercise could be unhealthy. And so have you seen this in any of your athletes, Danielle? And do you think that you can be, you know, addicted to exercise or have exercise result in negative impacts to your, to your mental health or or to your physical health? I mean, a part of what we're asking our bodies to do is, is beyond the limits. So it's kind of a really fascinating concept of like, we can't actually do the normal amounts of exercise. If we want to do these like a hundred mile races, like (laughs) that is not necessarily the, like we have to find that balance, but we still have to train to be ready. And so one of the things that I think is an interesting concept is there's this line And when we start to push past that line is when our brains start to respond a little bit differently. Um, But what the doctors are talking about with exercise is like 30 to 40 minutes, five to seven days a week. And so when we encourage people to start to move their body for wellness, we're not thinking about like, they're not understanding, oh, you're an ultra runner. That's what you're doing. Yeah, we've gone, we've gone past that curve and I've definitely experienced that personally, not, not in ultra running per se, but, but previously when I was racing, um, Nordic skiing and biathlon, like just pushing kind of past like exercise, holding an unhealthy place in my, in my life, like running was a stress reliever. And so whenever I was anxious or angry or sad or upset, like I'd go for a run. And, you know, being in a high pressure situation. And then I was going for a lot of runs, a lot of runs that were not part of my weekly training plan. And so I think it's easy to take this thing that should be a really healthy coping mechanism. But when you put it on top of all of the training that you might already be doing, that's prescribed by your coach or that's prescribed by your sport or your event, like all of a sudden it was like, for me, it was like this big tip of like something that should have been, you know, a healthy way to deal with these emotions and these feelings. But when you put that on top of, you know, let's say 20 hours of ski training a week, there was like only so much that I could, that I could tolerate from like a, both a, like a, a physical health, but really from like an emotional, an emotional wellness standpoint. Like I was not, not in a good place and my overtraining stuff. Definitely like depression is a big, is a, is a huge side effect of that. Like it's, it's very much linked together and, um, like was a huge struggle for me for a long time. Just like really riding that wave of, of not being in a good place. I think it's awesome that you're sharing that and talking about it because that's kind of one of the ways that we're helping people understand that a, they're not alone with this and that we, as, as a community really have a responsibility to talk about these things. But I like to say to my clients a lot, like, what are you doing for self-care? And people will be like, oh, I'm running. And I'm like, no, running is a stress on the endocrine system. It increases our cortisol. That is not actually what helps us relax. And I'm not saying running is bad. I'm just saying that any, like, ultra running is inherently a cortisol dump in our body. 
And so doing things like if you have a stressful day, maybe you have to consider that that speed work on that specific day may not be the best. Maybe it's better to be a little bit more flexible and change that day so your cortisol is a little bit lower. Or maybe doing a breathing exercise before your um, you go out and do a dump on your system. Because anything that can be taken away probably shouldn't solely be relied on as a coping skill. And running can be taken away from any of us. Like we're all just a step away from rolling our ankle because we're human. Yeah. Like I, I mean, what happens when you're not like the, the, the old athlete in me, the person, the person of five years ago, of six years ago, of 10 years ago would not have handled last year. Well, like being out for a year with injury, like old, old Corinne would have been a horrible person to be around in that state. And I think that like knowing that about myself and, and having other anchors and having other things that have it, having other coping skills made last year, totally. Okay. You know, which is a huge, which is a huge step. I think any of us can get there, but I think that that's really important. The stress is that we have to have coping skills outside of running. Well, acknowledging is the first step. Yeah. And do you feel like when we're talking about acknowledging it and owning up to having difficult thoughts or having a mental illness, do you see a similar response in men and women? Because one of the things that really stood out to me in the paper was that there's a high diagnosis of, of mental health disorders in the ultra running population. It's almost double to the regular population, right? But then it's even more interesting when you look into female versus male, where females are reporting having a mental illness two times as much as likely as males. However, when they take a risk assessment by PHQ or the EAT26, their results are the same. And so there's almost this like crazy shielding of the man, the male's mind where they're not willing to seek help and they're not willing to talk about it. And, and that can't be good for the sport. And so I'm wondering if you've seen that as a practitioner and if you have any strategies for working with males over females. Well, there's definitely, a, I mean, in any of the way we approach society right now, we do have these gender roles and gender norms. And it's still, I mean, we're doing a little bit better, but it is still more acceptable for females to struggle with mental health than it is for males. Like women are trained to talk about their emotions and men are still being encouraged to be tough. Um, and that. I mean, this is, we're talking years and years of kind of this predisposition of society to say like, oh, men don't cry, you know, and encouraging women to have that same philosophy within sports. So, I mean, I think the normalization, I I keep coming back to this, but right now it is, is seemingly seen as being weak to talk about your emotions still. Uh, I know like there are a lot of, token individuals who are able to talk about it. But I think for the general population, it is not common to say like, oh, I had a, a, a mentally hard day. Like a woman may be, feel like that's more acceptable or their friends may understand. Whereas a male, it, it's just not as um, prevalent. And so, you know, for working with men, a lot of what I'm sharing with them is that you will not lose your sense of toughness 
by talking about your emotions. This is not going to make you a worse runner. You're still going to be able to grit and bear it and overcome. You're just going to be smarter about it. Yeah, I think that we've had a number of conversations this year, including things around, you know, a disordered eating and low energy availability and how it's not, although we talk about it more with female athletes and research generally guides us more towards female athletes in those spaces, it's, 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 it is still there within the male athlete population. And I think it's, it's been huge for our listeners to hear our male listeners to hear the, the significant others of our, of, of males in the community. Um, I think it's been a really important thing to share and, you know, hope, kind of hearkening back to the very beginning of this, like, hopefully like we, we can normalize that conversation so that it's, it's not that discrepancy. Cause like those numbers tie into suicide rates too. Like, although the general population, like women are, are diagnosed much more frequently in the general pop with, um, with depression, with anxiety, with all that kind of stuff. But men still make up more in, in the Western, in the Western world, men still make up, um, more suicides than women. So it's like that we have to talk about it. This has right. to be a safe place. And I wonder too, like, are those numbers based on who's actually seeking help? Yeah, probably. I imagine so. So, and it's interesting too, like, how often are people going and talking to doctors about this? So back when I was um, getting a wellness certificate, the number one reason why people were going to their primary care doctors was stress. And so if That's you're, wild. yeah, I know, like stress is so prevalent in all of our lives. And if we're relying solely on running, as a way to manage our stress, it's going to negatively backfire. Our bodies cannot sustain that load. Yeah. That's like the stress is stress principle. Like your body doesn't know the difference between that good stress and that bad stress. It's all, it's all stress to it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And we put our bodies through so much. And I think in this sport, we can really dig ourselves into a hole. And I think for me, at least, it was this battle between running so much and also fueling enough. And I think those things tend to go hand in hand in our sport where we not only pride ourselves on running more and running these gruelish runs, but we also pride ourselves in not fueling properly. Again, it's, it's to your initial point, Danielle, about giving praise to things that shouldn't be praised. Um, and so there's a high prevalence of eating disorders in running, right. In these body aesthetic sports, And how do you see like mental health impact fueling practices with your athletes? And then how do you combat like athletes who present with eating disorders or tendency towards eating disorders and help them get better at fueling and understanding the importance of food and and all of that? Oh no, I'm going to say like, well, if we normalize it and I got to get like a new catchphrase for this, but I, you know, one of the things that we have done in the running community is highlight specific bodies as being healthy and being more likely to, um, to be successful. And so right now, even though we're working hard at being a sport that is more inclusive, the primary, like the primarily the type of body that we still see or consider um as being successful is thin. So I was actually, Keely and I were talking to this college team and I asked 
who of them thought they looked like they had runner's body and no one raised their hands. And this is just something I hear over and over again of like, in order to be successful, I need to look a certain way. So that is inherently going to translate into our fueling practices. And if we're looking to anyone who has unhealthy fueling techniques or the ways they manage food and start to normalize that on top of what society tells us, we're not going to do a good job with the fueling part of it. And our brains stop working as well, the less we fuel. So like if you are just even a tad bit um, undernourished, your brain is going to positively reinforce that and you're going to be less likely to change those patterns up. The, I know personally, the more I run, for whatever reason, fueling can be a more complex, challenging situation in my brain. And it, I just connect it to like desiring to, to be fit in a certain way and what I've been raised and told as a, as an athlete. Um, so I know you guys have done like a really good job talking about how menstruation and being a proper body weight for yourself helps increase or makes you a better athlete. And I just want to echo that, that you have to find the body size that works for you. And you are going to be a better athlete if you can respect that. Yeah. Or respect, accept, like live, live in it type of thing, as opposed to with it. I think that that's really, really important that it's this, yeah, it's a positive relationship with your body, but we kind of want to talk about some practical, practical applications for those of us, um, who are wondering how can they take this into their, into their training, into their racing? Like what is some some really practical advice that people can bring into, let's say, you know, we're, we're in the spring season. People are doing their first, their first A race of the year, their first B race of the year, going into a big season. What can people do um, to practice, you know, mental health or respecting their mental health when it comes to race day? It's actually really exciting. I know this has kind of been a hard discussion thus far, but there's so many methods out there and ideas out there to help your like what I consider some of the biggest training tools outside of physical. I mean, I honestly believe they're a little bit more important than physical tools at some level, because if you think about like training for a hundred miler, how many people go over like 30 miles or 50 miles? Like there's a, a cap that we can physically train. There is no cap that we can mentally train. So this is this untapped well of excitement that I'm like, yeah, let's, let's dive into this because all during taper week, during like your workouts, we get all this extra time that you probably haven't tried. Not you guys, but like you as in the universe, (laughs) like we don't have to, we don't like focus on this. Um, and so I am a big believer that every single day we get an opportunity to kind of challenge our brains and reframe and be more resilient. And so like, I use this example a lot, but if your coffee spills, you you get two options. You can either cry about it, which is okay, because sometimes you need to cry and tell yourself you're going to have a bad day. Or you, if you need to cry, you can cry and then clean it up and pour yourself another cuppy and reset. 
And so this is like constantly a tool or a technique. You can practice every day, anytime anything goes wrong. How does your mindset shift? How do you feel when you get out of bed? And what do you tell yourself? So I like to go to this three-step principle, which is first, um, be aware. So be aware of the words that you use in your head. Where is the self-talk? What are you telling yourself? What are you letting other people tell you? The next thing that I like to do is be curious. So what is going on in your body when someone is saying this to you or when you're saying it to yourself? Or are you more negative during certain times of the day, during certain times of the month? So often when we start to have this awareness of how we're talking to ourselves, we then beat ourselves up, which doesn't help. It repeats the cycle. And, you know, being curious can give us more information. And then the third step is working on that reframe or that forward movement. And I'm a big fan of making reframe something that actually connects to you rather than it being something you don't believe in or something that doesn't seem true to you. So an example would be like, oh, I'm going to go run a 430 mile. Well, that's probably never going to be my truth. So rather than saying something like, I'm going to run my fastest mile ever, I'm going to say something like, I'm going to focus on each lap and I'm going to do, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to encourage myself. And so the kind of step-by-step working on being aware, being curious, and then having a reframe. That's so easy. Yeah, it's really it seems easy. so it seems so easy. I I've I like that. I've always feel like I've had to tell myself and tell my athletes, they're like, oh, how do I build mental toughness? And I'm like, you're showing up to your training like almost every day. That's a pretty good way to build mental toughness. It's not always nice outside. You both are in Portland right now. I'm sure it's really nice outside. Um <laughs> It's Pacific Northwest winter springtime. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I do think that like that that is like you're you're showing up every day. You did like you're doing interval number four when I'm inter- interval number three was hard, right? Yeah. You're wondering if you can make it through the entire workout, and then you do. Like I think that people don't realize that they are practicing this or can practice this literally constantly. All the Mm -hmm. time. And we should be celebrating rather than our brains are so programmed to find the negatives. You know, I actually encourage my athletes to tell me like, what is one thing that went well? Like I can hear the negatives. Like I'm all about that. Let's be accountable. Let's be real. But you also need to be pointing out the things that you're doing well, because life is really short and we need to cheerly appropriately ourselves. I, like I love that. that. <laughs> We're taking it. It's, it's now ours. We've stolen it. Cheerlead ourselves. Seriously, though, it's very true. Like, I like to call it like celebrate the mini wins because I think we yeah. can get so caught up in these big audacious goals that we like burrow ourselves in so deep in pursuit of this goal that we forget to like come up for air and celebrate like the little mini wins we have along the way. And you can get to that big, hairy goal and like, you look back and you don't even know what you accomplished that whole time. Cause you didn't take the time to understand like what you were doing and how, how fun and how special those little moments were anyways. And kind of like taking it back to those little kids. We weren't taught this as little kids. Like we were taught not to celebrate the process. We were 
taught to celebrate the outcome. And so we do have to do some rewiring and retraining of our brain. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it is work. And a lot of people are like, why am I so hard on myself? And I don't want to have to work on this, but it's been something so many of us have been doing for so long. It does take that kind of habitual practice and acknowledgement. I'm like, there is not going to be a time when I'm racing that I'm not going to be hard on myself. That's going to come. And what do I do with it? Rather than being disappointed that I have a hard moment or feeling, you know, like I should be happy or positive all the time. Like we're asking our bodies to do really, really hard things. You're going to struggle. So how do you move forward with it? Yeah. (laughs) I think, are we ready for our final question? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So what do we do? if we know someone is struggling or suffering or what, what can we do as a, as a teammate, as a friend, as a significant other, as, as a person in their, in their community and their friend group, like, what can we do if we know if if we're worried or if we know someone is, is struggling or suffering? So this is going to be a really, uh, hard thing to do, but this would be my biggest recommendation is to be honest with them. Hey, I really care about you. And I have seen that this has become really hard for you. And because I love and care about you so much, I'm curious if I can help find a person to support you. Yeah, it's not easy. And it's not easy in part because you never know how the other person I think is going to respond. You worry, right? That if you if you reach out like that, that the response could be to to push you away. And that, and that that's equally scary, right? That you don't, sure. you don't want to put yourself or that other person in that position. Which is why I kind of go back to like, this is because I care about you. And I, I kind of, I, here we go again. I normalize it. Like everyone struggles and there are people out there who are trained to help you feel better. And because it hurts me or Maybe you shouldn't say it hurts me, but like, I know you don't have to feel this way. I like that. And I think people, if you're listening, you just, just record, just record that little bit that Danielle said, and then you can just hold your phone up to your friend and be like, hi, this is what I want to say to you. Um, It's hard. It's really, no, I think it's really hard. It is so, I mean, sometimes because I work within mindset coaching and there are times that people need a higher level of care. And even as a provider, I struggle with it. I'm like, this is uncomfortable because it's not a rejection of you. It's just that I see that there are better supports available and I want to be able to help you and, and like, have you live your best life. But at some level, we enable behavior if we don't say we see you struggle. Yeah, it's like how not saying something kind of makes you complicit sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going well. to cheerlead. Cheerlead ourselves. a wealth of information. Yeah. <laughs> cheerlead appropriately. Cheerlead, cheerlead appropriately. Cheerlead yourself appropriately. Danielle, before we dive into our society slam, where can people find you? Obviously, we're going to link things in the show notes, but where can people find you if they want to want to know more, if they want to ask you questions, they want to reach out to you personally? They can email me, Snyder at gmail.com. 
Perfect. And we'll, we'll link your website and your Instagram in the show notes so people can track you down. Um, we're going to dive into our final little bit of the show. As always, our Society Slam, what we're hearing from you all and our Society Slam is brought to you by Aura Ring. Um, we keep saying that we've got shows coming up that we're going to talk more about heart rate data. And we do. We finally I do. We laid, we laid out our plan. What do you got, Keely? You got something about Aura Ring? I do. So... I love my O-ring. Let's just start it that way. And I'm not saying that because they sponsor Society Slam. I actually love it because it's so nerdy. But basically this week I had one day where I was sleeping really, really poorly. And I woke up and my ring told me like that was really crappy sleep. And so I took a nap and the ring picked up my nap and it congratulated me for taking my nap. It said that nap was the most perfect nap you could have taken. It improved your sleep score and you're going to feel a lot more energized. And I mean, I did, but I also like, I feel kind of guilty taking naps. And so it was really cool for it to tell me that it was actually like a really perfect nap. And, and it did, it had me feeling so much better for the rest of the day. Um, and then my second tangent around my ordering is that I'm currently like four days out from getting my period. And so my body temperature is so high. Like I'm like a furnace in the evenings and my, my ordering obviously tells me this and I can look back over like six cycles now and you just see it gradually going up and back down and back up and back down just, and right now it's, it's going towards its peak. So I know yeah, that I'm on track. So it's just so fun. There's some so really cool. cool research that we'll talk about. There's this really brilliant researcher at Lululemon um, who's a data scientist and she's like a major wearables nerd. Um, and she shared an article recently about um, with Aura Ring and they, they're they actually going to run clinical trials now um, because researchers out of Berkeley and UC San Diego um, used a bunch of aura ring data and they were able to tell when women conceived, they could tell like, like pre, like pre-pregnancy tests, they like based on body temperature in particular, and some of the heart rate variability data when women were pregnant. Wow. And it's That's so like, really cool. like pretty accurately. And so they released a paper, um, in the last six months and it's like kind of the first step to get a clinical trial off the ground. Um, which is really, really cool that this wearable tech is like, you know, giving, giving, I would say like some body autonomy back potentially to some women, um, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, okay. Danielle, you are our first guest to ever be in society slam. Do you have anything that was cool that someone shared with you? Anything interesting that you want to, you want to share during this little, little time slot? Now I'm on the spot. There's so many like cool things going on. Um, you don't have to have one. I don't know. Well, two new women in the Pacific Northwest did an FKT this past weekend. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Keely says I look really dorky when I do thumbs up, but that's that deserves both of my thumbs. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really up. like the thumbs up. So <laughs> that's um, perfect. That's perfect. That's so, so cool. I was going to say someone had to do an FKT. Um, my society slam, some of you will have seen it on Instagram. I'll, I'll share, I'll share a post um, about it too when this comes out. But um, one of my athletes who's a listener of our show, Erica Hoagland, who lives in Marin, is training for Western States, um, happens to own a cookie business, kind of an accidental cookie business called Rosebud Cookies. And she makes these amazing 
sugar cookies. And she made some that were themed around trail society. So she did one with our logo. And then she did these really cool outlines of our, like of our heads. I ate half a Keely earlier. It was great. Um, so I just wanted to give Erica a shout out because it was so sweet and so personal. Um, I picked it up out of the mailbox yesterday when I got home, um, from ski touring and it was just like the perfect little surprise. They're super, super cool. I'll share it on Instagram because what a cool, what a cool thing to receive. I feel like we made it. Yeah, we definitely did. (laughs) Better than that. Yeah. Mine's going to remain anonymous, but, um, it's just something I've been noodling today and you guys will think I'm repeating myself, but I'm going to say it anyways. So, um, I had a friend who did a race recently and received a lot of messages afterwards of people assuming they knew what went wrong. And so they kept asking this person like, Oh, what happened during the race? Why did it go so poorly? And this was all without context of knowing what happened or what the goal for the race was by that person. They just assume this person normally runs X fast. And so they should have done this well. And it's just a reminder to me to never assume, you know, what people's intentions are going into a race, unless you talk to them the day before the race, um, regardless of their prowess as a runner, right? Cause we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's, what their life stress is. We don't know what their mental health is at the time. We definitely don't know what their race goal is. And so if you have a friend that you saw recently who maybe ex- did a race that you were shocked at their result, just reach out to them as a friend like remind them how proud you are of them and, and how great they are as a person. And if they want to talk about the race, they can, but don't let that race define them. And definitely don't assume that the race didn't go as planned. Cause we, we don't know. I think that's really important. It's we all, we all have that fear of being judged, um, for what we did or didn't do. So I think that's really, really cool that you're able to reach out to your friend like that. I'm well, sure they appreciated it. To the <laughs> process rather than just the outcome. Yeah. And cheerlead, cheerlead yourself and cheerlead your friends. Okay. I think always more room at the table. (laughs) Um, yeah, you can come to our round table anytime. Danielle, we want to give you an extra, extra big thanks for joining our show today. We've wanted to have you on for a long time. And I think it was such a special treat to have you on to talk about, um, mental health and well-being during this crazy time of life that we're all going through. This was so fun. Thank you both so much. <laughs> so as always, we're going to leave you here and now, but if you have any questions or comments or concerns or feedback or things that you found interesting during your kind of weekly, weekly jaunts, um, as we're maybe playing in your earbuds, um, slide into our DMS. They're open. They're open for you. We've been having a lot of really good conversations every single week with all of you out in our society. Um, and we appreciate that so very much. Um, another big shout out to our friends at free trail. We couldn't do this without them. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.